You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. So here's a plug for my wife's cookie business. About 20 years ago, she started making chocolate chip cookies. And I'm not talking about the buy the refrigerated dough in a tube and slice it into cookie discs and then throw it in the oven and every cookie tastes exactly the same as everybody else in your neighborhood. She now makes the best chocolate chip cookies around and yes i'm her husband and yes i'm prejudiced about it but i'm also telling the truth i have seen dozens of times uh, when someone's offered a cookie for the first time uh, they're in a conversation they take a bite of the cookie they stop in mid-sentence look at the cookie in their hand just like their hand just caught on fire or something they are phenomenally good in fact here's here's a rundown of some of the things that have been said about them over the years they're amazing Uh, they're phenomenal all caps was tweeted just recently Uh, One man said they're a spiritual experience. Slap your mama good. If you're not from the South, that may not ring true. But if you are from the South, you know what that means. Uh, The best cookies I've ever had in my life. I've heard that so many times. uh, I can't even begin to count. So here's the thing. She opened a cookie business last year. It's called Sweet Life Cookies. It's right here in Nashville. And she's just got her website to where she can take online orders. So uh, these are small batch. Uh, she's a small batch bakery. She doesn't even have a storefront. It's, she works in a commercial kitchen, but it's fantastic. And now she can ship. So if you'll go to mysweetlifecookies.com, she has three kinds available right now. The original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, which is exactly what it sounds like. And then uh, the classic white chocolate macadamia nut available in dozens or half dozens. Shipping is via USPS and it's available countrywide. So uh, not internationally yet, though, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, But it's right here in the States. So that's MySweetLifeCookies.com, MySweetLifeCookies.com. And uh, I encourage you to order some today. And I can assure you, you will not be sorry. My guest today on Uncommentary is Todd Atkins. Todd is the Director of Leadership at Lifeway Christian Resources in Nashville, the host of the Five Leadership Questions podcast, and the manager of Ministry Grid, a former executive pastor and current Twitter dominator in the leadership space. Todd has the unique ability to tailor leadership principles for leaders and organizations of all kinds and sizes. Todd Atkins, welcome to Uncommentary. I'm so happy to be here. Well, you sound a lot better. We had some technical difficulties there at the beginning. We did, just but, a wee bit. But you're the you're the wizard, so we, uh, something we, like that. I think we sound good now. I think we do. All right. Uh, well, you're all over Twitter, and you're really creative. You just launched a um, a podcast of your own, I think, that's taking over the world. No, uh, well, the morning and evening thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, I noticed that spurt like. Spurgeon's Morning and Evenings, classical devotional, a classic devotional. It sounds a little classical now that it, I put some music on it, but um, it <laughs> it was baroque. it was in the public domain and nobody had done it as a podcast. I mean, you can get an audio version or you can download right. it for free, right? Um, so I guess people are like, "Oh, it's not worth doing." But for me, I'm like, "Man, I want to do it and do it well um, before somebody else has the idea." But nobody did. And so, yeah, I ended up, I'm more of a producer. Yeah. I, you know, wanted somebody who sounded more Spurgeon-esque. You're the Steven Spielberg of the Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Podcast. Yes. Awesome. 
Uh, well, Todd is a longtime friend and uh, has been involved in leadership for a long time, and he's got tons of Twitter followers. He's very influential in his field. But I realize that a lot of folks won't know who he is who've been listening to season one all down through the previous nine episodes. So, Todd Adkins, who are you? Man, that's a really good question. Dude, you got like 30 seconds. Uh, all right. So, well, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, one stoplight in the county, not the town. And then <laughs> the before I came here to Nashville, I was in D.C. for 10 years. Did a lot of ministry in between those times. Okay. and um, Like church-related type stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of leadership uh, focus. Yeah. Uh, and so... For me, it was always strategic initiatives and developing people, and so now I just get, get to do that on a broader perspective. Yeah. Per- perspective, perspective, from, and or perspective, or perspective, <laughs> whichever you. Prefer. That's what we say. Remember, I told you I was from middle of nowhere, Kentucky. <laughs> You're so far out in the country, you could only afford one syllable in a <laughs> That's word. That's right. Um, so we're both we've both been in kind of the corporate American atmosphere and mm-hmm. not corporate American atmosphere. And there's some overlap. Um, you know, pe- some people might think in church work, there's not organizational stuff. And in some churches, that's probably true. There's not a lot of organizational stuff. Uh, but HBR readers and HBR podcast listeners right. and people who go to Stanford and people who go to Columbia and study management and leadership and all those kinds of things or go to the Kellogg school. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's applicable and, you and I have probably both worked in places where the leadership atmosphere wasn't optimal. Right. Uh, maybe even suboptimal. Uh, what, what's going on in the world of leadership today in corporate America? Well, I think regardless of where you are, um, whether you're, you know, sacred or, or secular space and you're a leader, you're finding yourself dealing with the current speed of change is absolutely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, traditional forms of change management and how to roll those things out, uh, they're, they're kind of out the window because you don't have 18 months or two years to implement a major change. Or the 15-year long-term planning no, committee. Yeah. because yeah. or the five-year. Yeah. You can throw all that out the window because if you, if you actually wait until the, if you implement it in that time frame, you're going to be a change or two behind mm. already. So it is that rapid understanding of we have become more and more complex and organizations are always going to drift toward complexity over the course of time. They're not going to drift toward simplicity. But now more than ever, it's important to hone your your message, your mission, your values and say, okay, yes, all these things have to align, but I have to get laser focused on what it is I'm asking people to do, because if I don't, it's 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 not going to happen. And I don't have time to, you know, lead this slow moving process of change. I have to strip down everything that I possibly can um, because it's going to cost us. Is the is the rate of change solely technology or is it partially uh, generational or is it a combination of those and something else what what's going on with that uh i think it, it's a combination of technology and a generational shift so i mean you know technology is going to obviously lead that and and lead to change in other places so if you look at the way people were entertained mm-hmm. you know 10 years ago educated 10 years ago, 
um, communicated 10 mm-hmm. years ago. You know, all the above, it's all shifted. It's all changed. And so that's going to dramatically affect how we view the world. Um, so, you know, all these things were supposed to make us more efficient and better. And as it turns out, have made us quite worse. You mentioned HBR. Um, there's a great article in HBR from a couple years ago um, on getting rid of email. Mm-hmm. Like it was, a, oh man, what was the title? It was a great, there was a great title that went along with it. But deleting your emails, maybe? <coughs> getting no, no, rid no. of your emails? Trash box emails. It was basically, um, you know, it was making an argument for getting rid of all email. And it like went through not the history using of email. email? Yes. Okay. Because it talked about how terribly inefficient it has become. Okay. It's the high cost of cheap communication. Gotcha. So when you think it's just an email or just a text, it's disruptive and it takes away from what you're doing. We all think we're great multitaskers, but the reality is we're not. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there's numerous st- cell phone studies that just by having it next to you, it makes you dumber. I mean, well, I know, I know just by having it next to me, uh, it makes it almost impossible for me to finish a page of a book, right? Or two pages of a book, because there is such a tendency to, and I usually keep mine on silent, so it's not like it's pinging and dinging and everything. I have very few notifications sent to my phone. I don't know when, you know, tweets come in. I don't know when Facebook posts are made. Um, And still, if I'm reading through a book and my phone is within arm's distance, I find myself reaching for it purely out of habit just to see if some new piece of information has come along. Right. So I'm dumber? Yes. Man. Because you're distracted, therefore dumber. That hurt. Well... I have read recently that you really can't get away from your phone if it's in the same room. You actually have to put it in the next room and get it out of your, basically out of your consciousness before you can focus on the task that you're working on. Right. You'll sleep better even if it's not in your bedroom. That is so weird. What do you wake up with anymore? Nobody has an alarm clock. I know. I use my phone. Actually, I don't use my phone. I wake up at like four o'clock every day. I don't Without have to it. either. <laughs> I do the same thing day after day after day. It's the same time. So we have multi-generational workforce. Right. Uh, we have younger people coming up who are, I mean, I don't know how many generations now have been called the digital generation, but certainly at least the millennials and the Gen X or whatever the proper accepted terms are. But I'm looking at Twitter right now, and I'm looking at the Twitter feed of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the new uh, representative from New York. And, you know, I don't live in New York, so I didn't vote for her. But it's amazing to me, uh, she's a digital native, I guess, is the term I was looking for a second ago. She's a digital native. She's like 26 years old, just elected, youngest person ever elected to the House of Representatives. And she flat out destroys, and I use that term very advisedly because I know how overused it is. Right. But when these guys who are old as me, been in the House of Representatives for all these years, or in the Senate all these years, try to mock her or put her down in some way, she it's so natural it's such a part of her dna as it is with almost every person her age that it makes them look just as out of touch as i feel like they are when they try to do it to begin with right is this a is this somewhere happening besides on twitter is this a is this a marketplace thing too is it a business thing where the disruption is going to cause disruption between the the levels of uh, age and employment and the generational differences i yes and i think it's uh 
I think it's not just in the U.S. It's around the world and something that we have to pay attention to. So um, I, I've got a, a, a great friend, um, Stephen Earp. He's from Oklahoma. And you you wouldn't know it by... You realize that's guy. not around the world, right? That's just no, across no, no. the country. The, but his influence is massive because he has numerous Facebook gotcha. uh, groups and accounts and whatever. Gotcha. And there are people engaging... You know, in places that it's highly illegal to be Christian and somewhat, uh, but there there are people all around the world that engage, and we were discussing this in, within the last week that it's not just that you speak um, the language of a culture because somebody can like move somewhere and immerse themselves in the culture, and you know maybe six or seven years they start to make some headway. Right. However, uh, it's interesting that. Facebook in and of itself is a culture or Twitter in and of itself is a culture. It's more important to have someone who speaks Facebook or speaks, speaks Twitter yeah, right. to, to run your Twitter or run your Facebook than it is to actually have somebody that is part of whatever culture it is you're trying to reach. It is bizarre, but that is probably my most recent, like, crazy you know insight or or um so the thing that per- i'm drawn the, out of the person who does the uh the corporate newsletter or the corporate magazine probably isn't the person to run your <laughs> social but you're actually saying to try to find a, a a twitter native and a facebook native and an instagram native somebody that to, actually likes it yeah so it's shocking when you meet someone who runs you know, accounts for an organization that doesn't even like it. And they may have a knowledge of it, but they don't like it and yeah. they don't know how to speak it. And it's it's not going to be as natural. So just what you were saying about Cortez, it was it, it's something that, you know, she's it's just a part of who she is. And so from, a I guess, a cultural perspective, it fits. What is articulated is what is actualized in her feed. So whereas, you know, it, there's a disconnect. Whenever you look at culture, you're looking at, you know, artifacts, mm-hmm. what is articulated and what's actually actualized. Mm-hmm. And whether you're talking about uh, a business whose core values say one thing on the wall and it's different in the hall right. or a person. And so, you know, what are the artifacts that I know about this person based on their feed? Uh, and then what do they articulate and what is actualized and what they actually do? do right um and so i think it's important that we all understand that authenticity is is absolutely vital the days where you could get by without it are pretty much over you don't want to be i don't think so um you can take it to an extreme and say oh i'm going to be so vulnerable that then uh, everybody's overshare to be around you. <laughs> yes, you don't want to overshare. That's not what we're talking about here. Authenticity and oversharing are two different things. But yeah. if you don't have the emotional intelligence to figure that out, then you don't can't get on overshare. Twitter. Yeah, don't don't get on Twitter. Don't get on Twitter. Uh, what are some What are some trends you see um, in the wider American business culture uh, that people should be concerned about? Mm-mm. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, 
in work culture Mm -hmm. because we're rapidly moving to a work from anywhere culture but at the same time you're also seeing the increase of co-working spaces and that's for a couple different reasons one um if you went back i think it's 12 years now um i read a study this fall about the uh the average workspace the average cubicle Mm -hmm. uh used to be almost 500 square feet it was 480 some square feet this is like 10 15 years ago uh, then you get to now, and it's two hundred and twenty some square feet. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. So, in order to save cost, right? Corporations have done that. Now they're getting really excited because they have this work from anywhere, and they start to do the math, and they're like, "Oh, it's easier for me to do that." Well, meanwhile, um, studies now have Back shown at the Batcave uh, that. Uh, there's only a small segment of the population that's actually more productive from home. Yeah. Although a lot of people would say they are. It's again, it's the whole thing with the distraction of a cell phone. Sure. In addition to the distraction of the cell phone, you may have your spouse, you may have a dog, you may have a television. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have all these things. And in addition to that, you have the number one reason people move from working from home to a co-working space is loneliness really and lack of collaboration even if you're not working on the same things yeah yeah it's being in an environment with other people where you have some form of collaboration that's interesting doesn't even matter if we're working on the same thing so i think what's going to be really interesting is as you see uh the rapid expansion of working from anywhere um and people wanting to you know work people actually desiring that Mm -hmm. you it's going to put pressure on what is that what does that actually look like and how do we get it right as an organization is uh it seems to me working from anywhere is not just part of organ of business culture uh it's becoming a part of worker need uh as freelancing an expectation yeah. yeah as freelancing increases uh or you know as jobs go away or jobs shift um you know business sectors shift, uh, jobs go away, people find themselves unemployed for extended periods of time, so they decide to freelance different things. Well, most people are going to freelance from home. They're not going right. to rent an office to do that. So is that going to, do you think people who are freelancing, are they going to go toward more co-working spaces? They are. Wow. Uh, they are, especially in the last two to three years. As you see a shift, like there was a shift home, and those people that have been home for a while, it's not... You know, co-working spaces aren't competing as much against each other as they are against the home office. Okay. And so thinking about that, processing that, I think is is important. Um, and the way that you win people over is, you know, addressing some of those biggest felt needs that people have. And so I do think that, uh, you know, another thing that is difficult to understand and it's going to be difficult to navigate is the idea of outcomes, not ours. Mm -hmm. So it's great for some people to say outcomes, not ours. Oh yeah. I love my job because, um, I just get paid for the end result, Mm -hmm. not the hours that I work. Well, that's awesome for you. If you have the type of job that you can knock out in an hour, (laughs) knock out a bunch of stuff in an hour and get, you know, yeah. But, at the same time that also commoditizes your position Mm -hmm. um and so it's like oh well i'm not just as we move forward it won't just be you competing against other people in your city 
or even your country. Yeah. It's to say, oh, what does this look like for someone in the Philippines or South Africa or say hello know. to Fiverr? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, man, it just everything is in a massive state of shift right now and figuring that out and what what things can be done that way and what things can't be done that mm-hmm. way. Um, but overall, I mean, you know, in a knowledge based company, which most companies are going to be uh, in the future, in a knowledge-based organization, it really your greatest resource is your people. And mm-hmm. so I think there's going to be you know, a pendulum shift back to people working together in teams um, and at least co-locating for periods of time so they can get things done. And I don't know, hopefully people don't shift around and move around as much and companies are able to um, create business models where they can actually keep people long term. Because that's when you have the greatest effect and greatest return. When leaders are in place and teams are in place long term is, is the greatest effect. When our church began leadership training a couple of years ago, there was one book that I wanted every leader to have, and that's Designed to Lead by Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck. Uh, one of the things that I lo- uh, that I love about Design to Lead is it deals with leadership inside the church and leadership outside the church, uh, positing that leaders should be developed inside the church to affect all domains of society. Um, Peck and Geiger argue that um, churches that consistently produce leaders have three things, a strong conviction to develop leaders, a healthy culture for leadership development, and helpful constructs to systematically and intentionally build leaders so that leadership is uh, on purpose and not by accident. Uh, You may be doing some things, but you may not be doing those things. And if you are, you're not developing leaders intentionally. You may be developing leaders by accident, which means you're not getting what you really want to have. Learn more about Design to Lead at designtolead.com, and I highly recommend it. What um, For the average worker uh, in America today, regardless of the industry that they're in or the sector that they're in, uh, what can they do to help themselves stay relevant to their company in a in a time that we're, we've got this kind of avalanche of change, speed of speed of change? All these things are going on. Um, what can a I mean, is it is it as simple as taking night classes uh, to learn how to do Excel better? Man, I don't think so. I, I think the value you bring to your organization is your ability to learn and grow. So. Um, one of the things that I would be most interested in, in researching would be your learning quotient. So we have, you know, your emotional intelligence, your EQ, your emotional quotient. Mm -hmm. What about your learning quotient? What, tell me about your ability to learn because so many people will then, will, you know, reach a certain point in their career and they think they're done or, you know, I mean, you think uh, they think they're done in what way? In learning. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, in growing. Oh, yeah. I've got what I need to do this job. Well, to go to retirement. I'm sorry. Not anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, and so if you're, especially if you're in any leadership position, uh, it doesn't matter what position you're in. Unless you're a learner, you have a shorter shelf life. You really do. Yeah. And so it's understanding that. And, and it's not, you know, it's saying, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be okay with this. I'm going to set myself up by continuing to hone and learn my craft. In addition to that, I think a lot of times we'll see it as 
if I invest what I know in other people around me, then I might lose my job. And I would say the quicker, especially in leadership, that you recognize your fruit grows on other people's trees, the, the more value you bring to them, the more value you bring to the organization. I mean, a great example of that would be a graphic designer who's been in the business for 20 years and the kid from Full Sail. Um, you know, Full Sail's a, 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 an amazing educational institution for graphic artists and producers and right. blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and they produce people that, I mean, they, they just know the craft. They know it really well. They can come out and probably run circles around this guy. Mm-hmm. They know the latest, greatest, everything. However, that guy knows that organization. He knows the customer. Mm-hmm. He knows the history. Like, he knows so much. And he has two choices. Either he can, you know, um, hold like hold all his chips, hold his cards close yeah. to vest, uh, and just try to wait it out. He's which holding going to work. He's hiding the institutional memory from everybody. Yeah, yeah. Or he's going to actually invest in people. And you may work for an organization that ends up saying, "Oh, thank you very much for training this guy. Right. You got to go." Um, but I would give most organizations and most benefits the, the the organizations the and most bosses the benefit of the doubt that if they see somebody doing that they're not gonna yeah they're not gonna get rid of them so if uh if the thing that the average worker can learn uh during this is to continue to learn so they continue to add value what does the average uh, owner manager uh need to learn during this time uh i think it's i mean you are a manager right todd no, I, I think it really is learning that your fruit does grow on other people's trees. You're okay. like my team. Isn't that your pinned tweet? Uh, that it, probably it is. is my pinned tweet. It is. Actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is. It is that understanding of, hey, the people that I hire, that my legacy is not what I do. It's who I develop for my organization. Yeah. yeah. It's not what I do at the organization. It's the other people that that I bring along. And I have to move from learning new things uh, to l- becoming competent in those and leading them well, but then multiplying that in and through other people if I'm going to add value to my organization and value to the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the most vital thing that people people can do. And, and just um, it really is taking that time to say, okay, I'm going to develop myself and I'm going to develop the people around me and making time to do that even though it doesn't seem like I have any time because the return is going to be much greater down the road. Now, you have a lot of experience in church life. Um, You've served as uh, an executive pastor at a couple of churches and your current position is in a religious nonprofit where you do leadership development. among other things, <laughs> and start world world beating podcast. Um, what are some of the things in church life, uh, church leadership that might be a little unique or different from? Uh, we always know there's some bleed over. You know, there's some principles that are just interchangeable. But have you seen anything in like church organizational life that might be a little different than what's in the broader culture? And if so, what do we need to pay attention to? Well, I, I think one of the the things that um, some of my uh, some of the people that I went to seminary with and, you know, learned Greek and Hebrew yeah. and stuff alongside of that are pastors now would look at me and call me a pragmatist. Yeah. 
they would say, oh, this guy reads business books and then applies that to the church, and I don't know about all that. Yeah. And I would say, okay, fine. Then let me ask you a question. Um, what does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say? What does Ephesians 2, 10 say? And then what does Ephesians 4 say? Like, how do you move somebody from um, figuring out who they are? How do you move somebody from accepting Christ to figuring out how he's wired them and made them and released them to do ministry and really develop that person? Because that's your job. Yeah. What I don't see reflected in in churches is just the understanding that they should be better at developing leaders for the church and for the community than anybody. Yeah. So there should be, we should have better leaders than anybody. It should be the central place where people say, man, you know, our business is, is got good leaders, but that church down the road has amazing yeah, leaders. It from really, all walks I, I'd, I'd love to see the day when, uh, businesses are calling the local church saying, Hey, I've got an opening at this position. You got anybody in your congregation that, Oh, they can do this because they know that the leadership's right there already. And a lot of times, uh, churches want to draw the line between their local businesses and them. So I would say one of the greatest things that you can do is get connected to your local chamber of commerce as mm -hmm. well. Um, the next time you need a facility, uh, the next time you're having a parking issue, uh, or you need some special egress thing, it's going to be amazing <laughs> that you're going to find the people that you met in the Better Business Bureau, and the, not the Better Business Bureau, Chamber sorry, of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce are your are, are your guys. And yeah. P.S. By the way, these people that own businesses and lead lead businesses in the community that seem like they have all their lives perfectly together don't. Right. And when the bad times come, you're going to have a tremendous opportunity to minister to those people. And bring some of them to Christ, bring some of them to your church, and that's going to have an amazing impact on your community. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross, the the temple was rent in two. That meant the, the sacred, veil. the veil. Yes, yes. The, the the sacred and the secular are no longer two different things. And so, why are we trying to make them two different things? Don't try to compartmentalize your life, yeah, or lead the people in your congregation to compartmentalize their lives. Everything you do is to the glory of God, and everything that you do should be done in that manner. So for me personally, I'm like, man, we need to to um, produce the best leaders in the community. They should take some of the principles they're learning uh, at our churches and apply them to their businesses and vice versa. Like it's all truth is God's truth, mm -hmm. and and come on, there's we're wasting time. <laughs> so... so um, um what are some good books? Name two good books that are like just generic leadership uh, type stuff that may be good uh, in church, but definitely would be good for a person who's not working in a church or a nonprofit world. They're they're out in regular nine to five and and uh, things are going on. And then a couple of that are maybe more applicable to a church setting. Okay, so um, I think for anybody listening, doesn't matter where they are in an organization. Ideal team player Lencioni, I think, is his best book. He's got great books. You've heard of. You know, death five by meeting or team. five dysfunctions yeah. of a team. You probably had to read that at some point. The ideal team player is one that everybody should read. Um, a more recently recent book that I read is called A Beautiful Constraint, uh, and it is one of those you know Harvard Business Review yeah. Kellogg. Mm -hmm. It's actually required in one of Kellogg's programs right now. Is where I found it. Um, but uh, Beautiful Constraint is what we're all dealing with. It's understanding that. 
um, we're all feeling pressure to innovate, to be creative, and we don't have unlimited resources. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we can't just think, oh, but if I just had this or Mm -hmm. if I just had that or if I just had more money. Uh, It is when you put yourself within constraint that you actually have the most innovation, the most creativity. Um, And so whether, you know, regardless of who you are, what your role is, I think those are two really good books. How about two books that are more applicable to church life? Well, first of all, I'd say those two books are really (laughs) applicable, really applicable to church life. You're just being lazy. No, I'm not. I'm saying that we should be reading those things. We should be contextualizing those to our ministries and saying, okay, what can I learn from this? Fair enough. Um, because if anybody is under constraint right now, it's going to be churches and nonprofits. So, uh, okay. So, um, for church leaders right now, um, I would still say one, man, you're going to think, um, I don't know. I already already know the book you're going to say. Designed to lead. (laughs) So good. It really is so good. Um, it is. And, you know, they talk about culture and um, I would see them. I'm not going to say raise them, but I would see them and say, OK, yes, culture is vitally important. Um, so but, you know, we've all heard culture eat strategy for mm-hmm. breakfast, but it actually gets its appetite from purpose. And mm-hmm. so understanding what is the purpose of your church? OK, we could all answer that in a Sunday school way. Yeah. But then are we aligning everything around that? Yeah. And so where you go back, oh, well, that's purpose-driven. That's like 40 years old. Yeah, but the problem with that was we added everything to it. We just said, oh, well, that fits one of the five purposes, so I can do that. Um, And then you had Simple Church as a result of that to say, oh, no, it's more of a process thing. Um, But going back to the the purpose, the divine purpose, uh, and understanding that. And then I would say, so think about that from a church perspective. Think about it from a business perspective, like, what is our ultimate purpose? Um, and understand that you have drift on your purpose. You have drift on your vision. Um, and it's vitally important to come back and relook at that and recast it uh, constantly and consistently. Um, or you're going you're gonna to have some serious drift. My guest today on Uncommentary has been Todd Adkins. You can follow Todd on Twitter uh, just at Todd Adkins, right? Yep. A D K I N S. Yep, yep. Um, are you anywhere else on on the interwebs? Mm, minimally, minimally. I just kind of. I mean, you know. Yeah, you're I, not one of the guys that has everything. Like, you don't have a no. Facebook page. Well, you may, but you're not like living there, no. and you don't have a blog. I mean, you don't have a blog. And you're not like Seth Godin and everybody. And no, I tweet, and I mean, I do these ninety second. I do these ninety second videos that are all visual. It's like. Oh, I but, remember the Hungry Hungry Hippos. Uh, that was the games, the little game series. But yeah. most of them are in front of a, a light board yeah. and, you know, let's break down this quadrant or let's break down this. Is that something anybody can find or not? Yeah, if you go to Twitter <laughs> okay, and hit hashtag uh, 90SL. Okay. All right. You'll so, see. So, uh, and you're, you're a host of a podcast? Uh, yeah, a couple. Okay. What are they? Uh, five leadership questions, and then I co-host with Daniel M. And new churches, I co-host with Daniel M. and Ed Stetzer. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And until next time, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Commentary. 
Well, we've reached the end of season one of Uncommentary, and I have a few thank yous. First, thank you to you who have listened, rated, reviewed, and generally shared Uncommentary through these weeks. Uh, I can't say thank you enough. Its uh, popularity is largely due to you. Also, thank you, uh, those of you who have offered financial support, either through PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod, uh, or become monthly patrons at patreon.com slash uncommentary. Uh, your support cannot be overstated and is greatly, greatly appreciated. I uh, also want to thank James Peach, who has done all of the audio fixing. Uh, if anything sounds great, it's because of James. If there's an occasional flaw, it's because of me. Uh, and he's done great, great work, and I really do appreciate it. Uh, audio, of course, by 8-Ball Audio, which I greatly enjoy. I uh, look for a little change up next time, but it'll still be jazz piano, and we'll, uh, we'll appreciate it together. Uh, until season two, I hope you'll continue to share. If you've missed any of the earlier episodes, I th- hope you'll take the opportunity over the next couple of weeks to review those and uh, mark them as played in your podcatcher. Uh, and then last but not least, be looking for any special episodes that might drop between now and the 1st of April when season two launches. Again, thanks for listening. Solideo Gloria. <laughs>